The content of this podcast is only intended for HCPs and the views expressed in this podcast are those of the presenters. Welcome to our podcast series, Looking Back to Look Forward, the impact of environment on fungal infections. In episode two of our series, we will talk about a topic that has really grabbed our attention over the last few years of the COVID-19 pandemic and has had really quite some coverage also in lay press. And the topic will be a dangerous combination, COVID-19 and invasive mold infections. My name is Martin Hünigl. I'm an associate professor for translational mycology at the Medical University of Graz in Austria. And it's my special pleasure and privilege today to welcome Joost Wouters to this podcast. Joost is a professor of intensive care medicine at the Department of Internal Medicine at UC Leuven in Belgium. He's a true thought leader and innovator with his research in the field of viral associated fungal infections in the ICU. Joost is on the one hand running a very busy ICU also today um, and taking clinical care of these patients, but is at the same time also a leader and of a highly productive research group focusing not only on clinical research, but also on basic and translational and immunological research, allowing Joost really to have a view from multiple angles on this emerging topic. So Joost, welcome to this podcast. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Perfect. Let's start. So my understanding is that, you know, while you are recording this podcast, you're also taking care of the ICU. So let's get things going. So I would like to start our conversation with asking you how respiratory viral diseases have changed the landscape of fungal infections. Yeah, thank you so much, Martin, for this nice introduction. Um, so as you know, um, invasive pulmonary infections are classically seen in patients who are immunocompromised, deeply immunocompromised for many, many years. Uh, and that sort of patients, we call them ERTC positive patients. So it's about patients, hematology patients, oncology patients, stem cell transplant, solid organ transplant patients. So that sort of patients. And there we know that they are uh, especially at risk to develop uh, invasive pulmonary aspergillosis, for instance. But um, in 2009, with the Mexican flu, we, for for the first time saw also uh, patients uh, admitted to ICU with severe influenza who were not uh, really or even not at all immunocompromised and they developed invasive pulmonary aspergillosis. Um, and uh, we saw that for uh, many years uh, with uh, the different flu seasons and then in uh, 2020, uh, um, so COVID came and COVID-associated aspergillosis was also uh, observed in patients admitted to ICU with severe COVID uh, disease. So from then on, I think uh, from, from, from 2009 on, we can, we can say that we identified together with a lot of collaborators, as you know, we, we identified a new risk group of patients, patients who are admitted to ICU with a severe viral infection. Um, and I think it's important to be aware and to, uh, to, to go for uh, adequate diagnosis of these patients. Thank you so much. Talking more about the impact of COVID-19 on the incidence of mold infections, I just want to go a little bit deeper there. I mean, first of mm -hmm. all, how big was the impact? Was this measured to some extent? And also what countries were mostly affected by um, this impact? 
Yeah, I think concerning uh, COVID-associated pulmonary aspergillosis, so we can talk about CAPA uh, in, in brief. Um, in general, there was a quite um, homogeneous picture um, around Europe, let's say, also in the States. And uh, um, later on, it was also clear that even in uh, countries like China, um, CAPA was observed. Um, overall with an incidence of about 10, 10%, maybe 15% of the patients uh, admitted to ICU with severe COVID. Um, if you compare that, for instance, with IAPA, so influenza-associated pulmonary spagellosis, I think it's a little bit less. Uh, IPA is uh, there, there is more an incidence of about uh, 15 to 20%. As you know, um, we also uh, observed, especially in countries like India uh, and other countries, we uh, observed uh, a co-infection with uh, mucormycosis, so we call it CAM, COVID-associated mucormycosis. And there, I think we have to do with uh, a situation where um, results already before COVID was already uh, some baseline exposure in those countries like India, Pakistan, even China. And um, uh, ICU physicians and ID physicians observed a, a twofold rise in uh, mucormycosis during uh, this, the first waves of uh, severe COVID. In Europe uh, and the States, uh, there are um, uh, less cases, clearly less cases of uh, CM. Uh, so it's especially a, a, a co-infection observed in countries where there was already a, an important baseline exposure. And especially for India, I think uh, we can talk about a sort of perfect storm where you have these patients uh, with um, uh, diabetes uh, that was not well controlled, the overuse of corticosteroids and then uh, severe COVID and the combination of these three factors led to uh, a, 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 um, a number of patients with uh, COVID-associated mucormycosis. Thanks so much, Joost, for highlighting that, you know, on the one hand, we have COVID-associated aspergillosis, which is really a worldwide phenomenon. But then we have these other mold infections also with COVID-associated mucormycosis. For you, the listeners, so basically we heard about this COVID-associated mucormycosis outbreak in Lepres, often as the Black Fungus pandemic or the Black Fungus national emergency. Um, but Actually, we mycologists don't like to call mucor a black fungus. So that was a name the laborers used, but we are usually not using. So we are using, as Joost said, COVID-associated mucormycosis. So moving a little bit deeper into aspergillosis, because that's obviously what we see a lot in Europe and what you're dealing with in your ICUs, in your patients. Um, what are the clinical characteristics of uh, a COVID-associated and also influenza-associated aspergillosis? And what are the clinical outcomes of these infections? In terms of um, of clinical characteristics, we have to admit that there we are talking uh, rather about a specific clinical manifestation. So patients with uh, a fungal co-infection, uh, okay, they will deteriorate. There will be more oxygen need, more respiratory support during their ICU stay. So they they deteriorate in a respiratory way. But uh, besides that. Um, 
Um, and, and we can talk about chest CT uh, imaging, for instance. Besides that, the, there are no not that much specific signs uh, of uh, clinical signs of um, CAPA and IAPA, for instance. So in terms of clinical signs, um, uh, there are not that much specific signs. And so that's the reason why we need to go for a good um, mycological diagnosis. Uh, and But we can come uh, back later on that topic. Uh, in terms of outcome, it's clear that um, patients with um, a fungal co-infection, they have an associated mortality, which is more or less double of the mortality of these uh, viral-only patients or virus-only patients. So uh, for flu, severe flu in influenza or severe COVID uh, in influenza, we are talking about mortalities of 20, 25 percent. And if we have on top of that, um, uh, if we have on top of that a fungal co-infection, okay, their uh, mortality goes to 40, 50 percent. Um, what it means, what that means in terms of attributable mortality, that's not that clear. So we do not have uh, data that clearly uh, make the distinction between associated and attributable mortality. But anyway, attributable, uh, sorry, associated mortality is, is, is more than double. Thank you so much, Joost, for outlining the difficulties in diagnosing these influenza and COVID-associated mold infections solely based on clinical science or even radiological science. The question now is, with these bad outcomes you mentioned, how can we achieve early diagnosis in these patients in order to also manage these infections successfully? Yeah, indeed. So, as you know, to make the diagnosis of aspergillosis, most of the time we are talking about a probable diagnosis, which means that we have to have the combination of clinical signs, radiological signs, as we told, A-specific signs and mycological evidence. And for that, the last part, it's very important that we go for bronchoscopy. So I think bronchoscopy is key for making the diagnosis uh, um, for several reasons, in fact. First of all, uh, doing bronchoscopy in our ICU patients uh, gives you a direct vision on the airway, so you can uh, see uh, tracheobronchitis, for instance. So some of these patients do have uh, tracheobronchitis, so you you can immediately see the white lesions and for sure on the other hand you will also take uh, respiratory samples deep respiratory samples and there you can go for culture and non-culture based techniques um, maybe uh, just to uh, from my uh, from my experience in ICU I can also tell you that um, in most of our ICU patients we are able to do bronchoscopy in a safe way um, 70% of the patients is intubated, so it's not a problem to do bronchoscopy in those patients. But even in patients who are on ECMO, for instance, so the most severe sick patients, you can do bronchoscopy. Uh, it's not pro it's not a problem. And in patients who are on uh, non-invasive respiratory support, even some of those patients will tolerate uh, bronchoscopy in in a safe way. So it's very important to 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 assess safety bedside. But you can do bronchoscopy in most of these patients. And um, another uh, important detail, let's say, about the bronchoscopy is that we can uh, achieve our mycological samples with uh, only a low volume of uh, saline that we use during uh, bronchoscopy, once again protecting the safety of those patients. And once we have that sample, okay, we'll go for BL culture, but um, there we know uh, for many years already that um, 
Although the specificity is very high, the sensitivity of a BL culture is only about 30%. And that's the reason why we use, in combination with the bronchoscopy, why we use the BL galactomanum, um, where uh, uh, the specificity is also high, but especially the sensitivity is much higher than with BL culture. The same story uh, goes up for BL PCR. Um, and uh, based on those respiratory samples, especially if we can repeat them and if we uh, have uh, 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 several samples showing in the same direction, we can really make the diagnosis of uh, invasive pulmonary aspergillosis. Uh, when we are talking about blood samples, uh, serum uh, galactomalin, for instance, we have to know that um, uh, in, in CAPA, uh, the disease, the fungal disease is not uh, angio-invasive in most of the patients, so we will end up with a negative serum galactomanon. In patients with severe flu, um, the proportion of um, uh, patients where there is angio-invasive disease is a little bit higher, but for uh, COVID-associated aspergillosis, we have to uh, take into account that serum galactomanon will be negative in most of the cases. Thank you, Joost, for highlighting the need basically to really go into the respiratory tract for diagnosis in these diseases. So taking a step back and thinking about COVID, obviously, and the pandemic years now, COVID has changed, right? So COVID is now different than it was before in 2020 or 2021 during the Delta wave. Um, we do now have Omicron. So I think a very interesting question also for our listeners will be, do we still need to be concerned with today's COVID, with the Omicron variant, about COVID-associated fungal infections? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, and as you as you said, the the this, the scene has really changed uh, in the Omicron era, in the post-vaccination era, let's say. Um, so for sure, it's true that the number of patients admitted to ICU with severe COVID, the absolute number, really has decreased in most of the Western European countries. We can talk about uh, Europe. We can talk about the states. Uh, for the moment, I know that in China, for instance, there is a uh, another wave, but in general we can we can say that the absolute numbers of patients admitted to ICU with severe COVID has uh, really decreased. However, uh, we do see that the the um, the type of patients admitted to ICU with severe COVID are more and more immunocompromised patients, solid organ transplants, stem cell transplants, etc. So there we are again with our ERTC positive patients being admitted to ICU with severe COVID, and that goes along with a, a, a clear increase uh, in uh, the incidence of CAPA uh, towards 50, even 60%. Um, so that's important to know. And importantly to uh, to add here is that um, CAPA also in those patients in the Omicron era, let's say, still remains independently associated with uh, increased mortality. Um, so I think uh, this uh, leads us to the to the idea that we, we need more studies uh, on prophylaxis, for instance, uh, because I think that it's important to, uh, to start their uh, therapy as soon as possible or even in a prophylactic way, but that has to be uh, studied in the near future. So that's an urgent uh, research question, let's say. Thank you, Joost. So basically how I understand this is that the total number, of course, of these, for example, COVID-associated pulmonary aspergillosis cases has gone down, obviously, 
But the relative chance, if you have a patient with severe COVID in your ICU, no. that this patient may develop um, COVID-associated pulmonary aspergillosis has even gone up now with Omicron. So Indeed. I think that's really an important message to all our ICU physician listeners here um, that um, they really need to be aware about these fungal infections um, still nowadays, um, and especially nowadays, even more so than before um, in patients with Omicron who end up in our ICUs. Yeah. So I want to take a step basically into another direction because, of course, you're a man with many talents and we heard about your extensive clinical expertise um, in managing these patients and clinical knowledge on this matter. But I think you also have a very active um, research group, working group, work focusing more on immunological mechanisms, host response, etc., um, to these viral-associated fungal infections. And my question really, really relates to this, this work you're doing. So what can we learn from these immunological mechanisms in COVID-19 or influenza-associated aspergillosis um, for the future, for potential treatment options in the future? Yeah, indeed. Um, it's indeed very important to uh, understand the pathophysiology of uh, those co-infections. Uh, of course, this pathophysiology is multifactorial. Um, it has to do, first of all, with epithelial damage, so viral-induced epithelial damage. And we know that uh, um, at those places in our respiratory tract where uh, there is most damage, that are most damaged by the virus, these are the points or the places where the fungus can become tissue invasive. So there is uh, that's the first uh, point. But most important, I think, uh, is the is the immunological interference. So uh, for uh, for COVID um, and especially for flu, there are already clear uh, observations uh, in humans, but also in, in animal based on animal work that the virus has an effect on the fungal host response. Um, on the neutrophilic function, uh, the macro, the function of the macrophages, the phagocytosis, and um, it's like your patient who is basically not immunocompromised becomes like immunocompromised during a period of time uh, in their ICU stay where they are vulnerable to uh, to develop those uh, aspergillus co-infections. And, and uh, finally, I think there are already uh, some um, indications that there might be also a genetic predisposition based on uh, polymorphisms, for instance, that uh, have an influence on our fungal host response. But said that, uh, I think the, the important of those observations is that uh, by by deciphering this this pathophysiology, we we can discover new biomarkers to make uh, the diagnosis of of aspergillosis uh, and also to to assess the risk of patients uh, admitted to ICU with severe COVID or severe flu. Um, and with those uh, novel biomarkers, we can go for a, a better and a faster diagnosis, which uh, eventually also leads to uh, a, a, a faster faster therapy. That's one thing. And on the other thing, um, the, the study of the pathophysiology also shows us, uh, especially uh, when we when we consider um, the influence on the fungal host response, that maybe in addition to antifungals, we also need uh, immunomoderatory therapy uh, to be added to uh, the therapy 
at the right moment in the right patients. And there again, we can use those biomarkers and um, we can also uh, uh, look for um, therapeutic uh, targets or new targets for immunotherapy uh, based on this uh, basic research. So I think I'm, I'm convinced that in the near future, uh, several clinical uh, results will come out of this uh, translational research. Thanks so much, Jos, for bridging your translational and basic mycology work with your clinical work um, towards the end of this podcast. And I think this is really a perfect way to end this podcast because it also gives us an idea of where this field might go in the future based on the findings, you know, of course, of your working group, of some other working groups as well. Um, so I think that's really interesting, very interesting for all of us. So I want to thank you again for visiting. This was really outstanding, um, Joost, and gave us a deep insight, I think, into this important, but yet, as you said, still evolving field. Thank you for listening. My name is Martin. I hope this podcast sparked your interest in clinical mycology, and I'm already looking forward to welcome you all at the next episodes, which will focus on other highly interesting topics in the clinical mycology field. Mandy Farmer has sponsored the content and owns all rights, including all copyright, in this recording. This recording and any link to it may not be changed, supplemented or redistributed without the express written consent of Mandy Farmer.